Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, and thank you for this opportunity to discuss about such uh, a hot topic and what will more or less uh, be our greatest uh, challenge for the forthcoming three decades. So uh, I would like to thank the organizers for giving also that's, uh, this opportunity to us to discuss. And uh, I will get into the topic and cut into the chase right away. So uh, since the agreement on the IMO greenhouse gas initial strategy, we have come across numerous thoughts, some overambitious, some sort of target, and some somehow heretic, we could say. Irrespective of the debate of whether this is about fuels, technology, speed, ports, trades, logistics, we know for sure that collaborative action will be required. Or to put it more accurately, synergy and collaborative action could be saving us lots of money in meeting the targets. What we haven't seen yet, though, is the bridge between real operations, environmental, societal expectations. I would kindly ask you to try and assess this ex the extent of this gap together. For this reason, we have an excellent set of panelists and shipping stakeholders, I would add, because if something decarbonization can teach us is to better listen to those who will have to put their money where their mind is. So in this context, kindly welcome Mr. Dieter Rodenburg, CEO, Intership Navigation, Mr. Philippos Filis, Chairman and CEO, Lemmy Solar Navigation, Mr. Scott Bergeron, Director of Business Development and Strategy of Oldendorf Carriers, Mr. Hugh Crooks, CFO of Ridgeberry Tankers, and Professor Konstantin Arkumanis, former Ambassador of Greece for Energy Policy and New Technologies, former Vice President, City University London. And I will kick, out, uh, I will kick off with uh, uh, Mr. Rodenburg, Dieter. So, uh, my initial question is the following. So, Dieter, can we quantify the regulatory and technology risk today? How could we mitigate the risk of a changing reality? No. First of all, um, thank you for having me and uh, congratulations to uh, Nicolas and Olga for a very well organized and the team organized conference. Well, I think we heard in the last panel already that um, um, on, when, when uh, Yannis was mentioning um, what's uh, in the cards at the moment in terms of regulation um, and uh, what, we are, what we are up to, and I think what, what we are seeing now, um, talking about EDI, talking about EXI, um, this is only uh, the beginning of uh, what will come over the next years. Um, regulation is, is very much driven nowadays by public opinion. Public opinion is, um, is made by more and more by um, social media. So I'm absolutely certain that we will see a lot more uh, restrictive regulation coming um, uh, for shipping as well. And, um, if we look at the very ambitious goals that uh, the IMO has set, 
um, it's clear that we will need further regulation. And I'm um, sure that the, the addition of the Green Deal that the EU has come up with, which is clear, we will see ETS for shipping, um, is only one thing uh, on the way. So whilst we are all probably confident that um, 2030 is manageable for shipping, I personally think 2050 is not manageable and therefore um, more regulation will be required, is on the way, and the re regulatory risk remains high. Thank you. Uh, Dieter, you mentioned that uh, there is quite some ambition in what IMO requires, but uh, we, you also made a reference to ETS, and uh, I will come to Filipos and ask him, so there is an ETS legislation currently going on, and uh, at the same time, you, we have seen you uh, supporting uh, through, uh, personally and through Cyprus Shipping Chamber, uh, the creation of an R&D program, of an R&D uh, uh, instrument uh, under IMO. And uh, my question would be, having ETS in mind, is there really uh, a, a role for this kind of uh, R&D instrument or ETS will play that role and practically we're trying to uh, have a, 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 a power game between IMO and the EU in who will be leading this. Thank you, Banos. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Nikos and Olga. Uh, Banos is not the one question and I will try to <laughs> put a, everything in a perspective. I think it is a fact that uh, Mrs. van der Leyen uh, pushed a lot the Green Deal and uh, unavoidable shipping uh, will, uh, come, uh, will become also part of the ETS. Uh, it is decided uh, and DG Climate uh, is working towards developing the, the concept of the ETS to be implemented for, for shipping. It is expected though that by June next year, 21, that the system will be ready. Uh, we as the industry, and I'm talking not only Cyber Shipping Chamber, but uh, International Shipping, uh, International Chamber of Shipping, EXA, and all the round table uh, uh, commercial associations are against any regional measure, because this uh, might disturb, might distort the, the trade, might penalize European shipowners, and especially those who operate uh, coastal and only intra-European, and also uh, uh, other owners that they will uh, call uh, for any reason uh, in European ports. Uh, so we are for a global measure, under IMO, and we are totally against uh, ETS. Having said that, ETS is a fact. Uh, therefore, uh, the industry tried to open a dialogue with the DG Climate in order to at least make uh, or for, uh, formulate the ETS system in to the extent that will penalize as less as possible uh, the shipping uh, side, the European, specifically uh, the European uh, shipping side. 
this is not an easy target, and uh, we know that uh, will uh, will be uh, a lot of uh, will be a lot of discussions with DG Climate in order to uh, uh, agree in a sort of a system that uh, will be acceptable to the industry. Excuse but me. on the other side, okay. ETS is not a substitute to the R&D fund. And uh, despite the fact that uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, comments regarding the very low amount that $2 per ton consumed is nothing, and uh, DigiClimate, DigiCom said, uh, is nowhere close to what we aim to collect from ETS. Still, the, the, the industry suggested that, and it is part of the long discussions that we had since 2008 about the levy, the, the market-based measure that uh, will be under IAO as a global measure. And uh, if I recall well, by that time, the allocation of that collected amount was around 20%. It initially has been estimated to $10, uh, $10 levy on every, uh, every ton consumed. Uh, and this was based on the 100 billion uh, euro, uh, dollar uh, green fund through Paris Agreement and practically uh, shipping contributing around 2.6, 2.7 was a, a total emission. The allocation to us was, uh, to, was 26 billion and calculated reverse, we landed to the $10. The 20% are the $2. Practically, because I am on delayed, we push forward the fund uh, towards uh, um, uh, demonstrating outside that we as the industry are doing quite a lot uh, towards uh, a collective uh, decarbonization, despite the fact that the, uh, the ship owners have done uh, a lot uh, to, uh, towards uh, decarbonization in general. And this is proven, but is not communicated well. And I, I think this is our, uh, our problem as the industry. Uh, 2008, we have 16,000 ships, over 5,000 GT, trading worldwide. Uh, responsible for 80-90 percent. 2019, we have we have 32,000. Yeah. Yes. And, and we didn't reach, or we are very close to reach, the emissions that is the baseline of 2008. That means uh, we had we have as an industry a relative redu reduction of 50 percent. Uh, yeah, which but has yes, to be communicated I, well. I, I agree with you. Uh, the numbers are there, but uh, still, I have to, playing the devil's advocate here, there is still a huge gap between uh, the EU expectation and what is now uh, being discussed at the IMO. So, quite quickly, what is your, uh, two things. What is your view about the awareness of the shipping community of where the EU wants to drive things? And the second thing is, how do you feel that we could bridge that gap? Is there a possibility that uh, the EU and the IMO could eventually come up with one final conclusion? Uh, the bad story is that uh, the European Commission decided for ETS. We still, as industry, have time. That means we have one and a half year until they eventually form the plan. Um, and maybe another year until the implementation. Uh, 
both Digi Climate and DigiCom believe that if IMO by that time comes with a global measure that will be acceptable uh, for, for you meeting at least the targets or uh, the two was meeting the targets we said uh, for 2050, then there is a possibility and, a, and hope that uh, EU will withdraw the ETS for, uh, for shipping. So uh, now moving to Scott and my favorite topic, so technology. So uh, Scott, I'd like to ask you quite openly, today we, see, we have already seen a number of reports dictating the pathways to 2050. What is your view? Uh, are we there? Uh, are we close to 2050? What we have available today will be part of the solution, maturing some of the existing technology, or is there going to be some revolutionary road that we are not aware of yet? What is your view? Well, I think we're far from being there from today's standpoint. And what makes matters even worse is, is every time we think we're getting close, let's take LNG for an example. That's the new clean fuel. It doesn't take too much time before the environmentalists come down very heavy and explain why LNG isn't the, the panacea that that we would like it to be. So I think the pathway forward is gonna be a combination of technology and, and revolution. And we can agree about research and development funds. Uh, I think this concept has some merit. Research and development is gonna go a lot further than, than trading. I think trading is synonymous with greenwashing because you're not actually reducing carbon, you're just shifting where it is. Uh, so we have a long way to go. All right. Um, and going to you, and a bit on the societal and uh, governance issues. So you have recently, Hugh, you have recently been quoted saying that ESG, environmental social governance focus, has unrecognizably increased compared to past investor interest. Can you share with us a few examples? And do you see this trend becoming the norm? How do you consider addressing these matters from Ridgeville? perspective yeah. um, it's uh, uh, it, uh, absolutely it's um, it, it's something that's been really dramatic and I think those of us who are uh, more in them you know with investors and markets in New York or London are probably seeing it first but I think it it comes through almost um, to everyone people you'll see it with with banks and um, and uh, you know the Poseidon principles. They see it with public companies and shareholder activists. But we're we're a private company uh, that's backed by institutional capital. But at the back of of any of these capital providers, the the people who actually hold the the savings and investable money are their university endowments, who have student bodies and faculty bodies that are demanding that they decarbonize. Uh, their uh, public pension funds uh, that have also um, you know, very often, you know, populations of, of professionals, of public workers who are, who are looking for the same thing. So un unless you truly have your own family money in, in this business, to the extent that you need any type of institutional capital, uh, it's now risen to the top of the, of the list. And for a long time, the managers of these funds, um, I think, resisted some of this because they, they believed that their mandate was to, um, you know, maximize the the returns for uh, their you know their 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 holders, the pension you know, 
Uh, but what's happened is that over the last decade or so, the returns in the energy sector, and especially in shipping, have been so terrible that uh, the, the, the managers don't feel required to, um, to, to hold these amounts. So um, I just actually was reading in the Wall Street Journal this morning that you know, the composition of the, the, the S&P uh, dedicated to energy uh, a little more than a decade ago was about 14% of the market. Today it's 4%. And so uh, you know, a money manager can afford not to have 4% you know, tracking in here. So there's not a, there's not a, a, you know, a, a need necessarily for them to invest in this area. And because of that, those who still want to um, need to justify what they're doing and they need to convince uh, the people they report to that they're investing with the, the best companies in a, in a sector. So um, our biggest single investor is a $38 billion energy-focused uh, fund, and they have an annual meeting with all their investors. And uh, even two years ago, three years ago, the, the ESG portion was at the very end of the meeting, it was an internal lawyer, and he'd get up and say that, you know, they followed good practices. Now it, you know, it, it, it leads the meeting. And... Um, it's because it's, it's gone from being a compliance thing to um, a strategic imperative. And even some people see it as a strategic advantage. If, if you know, as we're all fighting uh, ultimately for, for capital uh, with, with banks um, on any of these social issues, you know, if we sell a ship and it's going to be recycled, um, you know, we do that according to Hong Kong Convention. I've personally been to, you know, the yards in Alang, the, the banks that we work with in New York want to know that, that you've followed, you know, this, your ships all the way through there. They, they want to see that, um, that commitment. And so it's not something that's passing. I think it's only going to get um, more intense and it'll filter, you know, throughout the, um, the industry. Yep. Um, but, okay, we, we, we have also seen the Poseidon Principles Initiative coming out in July. Uh, the question is, are we ready to really fund our initiatives and uh, our aspirations, our ambition, uh, in terms of really putting money where the ambition lies. And I'm asking this because so far, perhaps this is more of a risk-driven uh, yeah. decision. Uh, do we see that access to capital will depend on uh, environmental uh, uh, criteria in the future? Or uh, could you say that uh, access to capital, uh, capital will be cheaper for environmental uh, driven and uh, sense, uh, conscious uh, decisions? Um, I think, of course, one of the challenges is that we, most of us have only been trying to actually make money and make a profit, and we haven't done a great job of that over the last 10 years. You know, it's been a really difficult, difficult industry to be in. And so that's why, you know, these, you, you almost have to separate your, 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 your brain. You, you know that we have to be part of these solutions. We, and, and as a global industry, we, I think, have some advantages versus other industries in our ability to do that. But, you know, the, the numbers that are, that are thrown out, you put it in, in your notes. People are saying a, a trillion dollars. Um, you know, if you're making $3,000 a day, it would take you 980,000 years to make a trillion dollars. And so... You know, a, a million years is not actually what the EU or the IMO are, are, are looking yeah. for. Um, so, you know, these, these numbers are, are, are a bit debilitating uh, you know, and challenging. And the banks have the same issue. They've, you know, they've, they're coming out of areas. So, they, um, you know, they're trying to put focus on things with the Poseidon principles. But in the end, 
they, um, which I think is the correct thing, they, they, um, they need a project to make, to make sense. Um, and that's where you get to these other ideas, whether it's, you know, R&D funds. But I think just, and I'll, I'll shut up because I've now taken too much time, but um, I think the one other thing we all have to be really uh, prepared for here is the possibility that, um, um, you know, again, we've had a difficult decade against a strong global economic picture for 10 years. We, and we've all been somewhat probably saved from a worse fate because global trade growth has grown. In the tanker sector where we are, ton miles keep growing with the growth of exports in the, in the west running all the way to the east. I think we have to be prepared that instead of just a continuing to grow and someone providing a zero carbon fuel, that we end up uh, in, a, in an industry that's, that where the path to, to carbon um, is anti-growth, it, whether it's carbon taxes, whether it's other measures that both within our industry and, and globally uh, actually um, mean fewer ton miles, um, which is, you know, I think one of the other ways that you meet, you meet these, these targets. And so I think as, as owners, you have to be very, very careful where you're investing. If you're buying a ship and expecting to operate it for 20 years or for 10 years and that at the end of 10 years it'll have the residual value you expect that you can sell, I think that's a, that's a dangerous move. I think we're all going to have to be very, very nimble on our investment and our asset management. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. And uh, I'll keep what you said about tone miles and move on to Professor Akumani. So, Professor Akumanis, you, you have a very good idea, uh, knowledge of uh, the energy uh, landscape, and I would like to ask you, today we talk a lot about fuels, but we don't talk so much about the trades of tomorrow. So many of our ships are carbon carriers. So we have coal trades, oil trades, and what is your view? Where are we going to end up in 2050? So are we going to have the same trades? Uh, because I see too much focus on the fuel, but I don't see too much focus on cargoes. Uh, let me start from a slightly different base, and I'll come to you. F first of all, decarbonization is not a shipping issue. Starting from that important assumption, it's a global issue. It requires global convergence and uh, um, agreement. And the costs are such that almost are independent of any contribution of shipping. And let's come to more specific issues. Carbonization, the process is going to take place on land. The major factor will be on land. It's not a shipping issue, it's not IMO 2020, and therefore, in the future, the role of IMO on this issue is not going to become to be as important as we expect. Let me be more specific. If you speak informally to people at, in Brussels, they are committed that by 2050, we are going to have, we need to have zero carbon fuels. Let's keep that on the side and we'll come back to that. Second uh, comment that you get, and I agree with what Mr. Fili said, they started the disliking LNG, not 
arguing it's not so good and, and therefore it's greenhouse credentials, they don't like it anymore. So we are faced with two important steps. 2030, to dislike and start ignoring LNG, and 2050, to start ignoring carbon-based fuels. It's, it's uh, um, of course, it's a prediction, and, and nobody, nobody knows. Uh, but it seems that a carbon levy will be very useful, of course, not at the $2 per ton, a little bit more, maybe five. Uh, ETS, I agree, there is a lot of pressure in Brussels. They keep referring to, to ETS. And what I know is that at least uh, talking to the Greek minister of shipping, he's going to argue that all the organizations from ABS to Intercargo, Zetanko, BIMCO, are against ETS. And it's that a unanim unanimous voice against uh, ETS. The second point is, if decarbonization is a global issue, why not divert all the funding or most of the funding globally that goes to research in universities and other agencies towards decarbonization? The scale of the operation is such that will require such a global measure and just to, to close, uh, I'm worried that EU's voice in the future will be stronger than that of IMO on decarbonization for some of the reasons that I just explained. Um, in, in a sense of, uh, let's say, a light poll, since we discussed this here, uh, do we have, how many of us believe that the ETS will become a reality. So, uh, I think, uh, mi Mr. Felice, you don't believe that the ETS will become a reality? Yes, it will, but it, it depends on how fast IMO will work uh, and how seriously it's taken there. Uh, it's known that IMO is very slow in decision and developing of any uh, of any uh, new regulation, uh, but this time they claim that they are working with the velocity of the light. Uh, they are faster than ever. Uh, they realize the pressure they feel from European Union, but I'm afraid an ETS will come in place, and maybe if uh, later on IMO comes uh, with a global system then the, uh, the ETS, the European, the regional measure will be withdrawn. Uh, it's a part. Yeah. But, all right, then moving on from ETS, I would like to extend <coughs> my previous question on the issue of carbon carriers. So have we considered, and I will start with Hugh, have we considered the fact that uh, our uh, uh, our vessels carry carbon, and uh, I, I will just uh, mention here the, the somehow ironic thing of having today owners who want to order a VLCC, and they want to make sure that the vessel will, will be able to run on ammonia in 20 years down the road. The, the irony of having a 2 million barrels hydrocarbon <coughs> carrier that you care only about fuel being ammonia and zero carbon 
So how do you deal with that thought in ridge-based tankers? Um, no, I think that's yeah, clearly, I, I think one, um, one mistake that, that ship owners often make is we spend a lot of time analyzing the dynamics within, within shipping when we're making our decisions. We, we, we look at the order book, we look at specifications, we look at how you know, one type of ship compares to another and how the competitive advantages and ages, and don't spend enough time um, remembering that we are a, you know, a, a derivative industry and, um, and, and you know, in, in the case of tankers, I mean, in the short run, we know you know, at least we knew before coronavirus, you know, that 100 million barrels need to move tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after that and the refineries need the fuel and so we have, you know, we have some, some confidence there. Uh, but, but I think we, we have to take this into, into account and I agree, the idea that somehow shipping, that, that, that the world would have provided a zero carbon fuel that can power ships but, but tankers still have the same demand, you know, for the, the product they're carrying to feed refineries, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and as, as people said, it's a, it's a global, you know, this is a global issue, shipping is a small amount of it. Um, so I think it's, it's something, as I said, that we just have to, you know, it's, it's not something that, um, you know, it's something you'd have to think about if you were ordering a new ship. And it's one of the reasons we tend to stick a little bit more into the middle-aged part because we, we think that, that predictions get very hazy after a few years. So, all right, and uh, that's a, a good start for my, new, my uh, uh, following question. So, if you were to order a vessel today or the day after, tomorrow, uh, what would be uh, the, the optimum technology to apply today, again, with everything that you know and the risks that you're willing to take? So, it's, it's open to the panel. Scott, would you like to? Yes. So first, I just want to make a comment about carbon. Um, you know, Oldendorf carriers, we're some 700 ships. We carry 320 million tons per year. Half of that is iron ore and coal, two very carbon-intensive uh, products. And coal is dead, but long live coal, because it's not going away. It's, it hasn't peaked yet. And I think being in Europe, sitting in North America, as I do, you can have a very critical eye on the future of coal. But the future actually has some promise, particularly in the developing economies. And in spite of what the EU wants to do with, with their mandates, uh, Asia is going to be using coal for a very long time. Um, that said, fuel of today um, is very difficult. There's, as I said before, there's no, there's no perfect solution today. Uh, developing ammonia and developing uh, methanol, for example, two of the leading fuel options, um, after LNG, it's very carbon intensive to produce these. So you have to look at, at the second generation, if you will. I think one of the fuels that holds some promise are some of the technologies around uh, the second stage biodiesels, the biofuels, um, burning municipal waste, and, and kind of this whole back to the future scenario of extracting energy um, through these processes and you're starting with a product that, that consumes carbon as it is. So working towards some negative carbon approach. But there's no fuel today. If, if there were one today that everybody could shift to, we would see it. 
you see just a small speculation of orders in LNG. And so quickly has the hammer come down on how bad LNG is going to be because of this so-called methane slip. I think technology will come to improve that and that LNG can have a role. Um, I think ammonia is maybe one of the flavors of the, of the year. Uh, but ammonia is only going to work. You have to study this from well to wake. You have to study this from the life cycle of the ship. Hughes' partner, Bob Burke, says this all the time. I mean, how much carbon are we using to build new ships and scrap old ones? So I think we have to start looking at this more holistically. And, and in that regard, if ammonia is the future, then we have to develop the ammonia in a carbon-free way. And that requires solar, wind, other type of technologies. One trillion, as we said. So I, I, I will just pass the floor to Dieter. I want to have your opinion as well uh, on what could be a future-proof vessel today. <laughs> well, I, I think what Scott was saying is, is absolutely right. I mean, uh, we, we talk about ammonia um, or hydrogen as, as uh, carbon-free fuels, but they are not. You need to, rep uh, you need to uh, produce them. And unless you do that with uh, renewable energy, they are not carbon neutral. So I don't think that's really, you know, they may, they may be um, a part of future fuel mixes. I, I think it's very well possible. But clearly, um, if you talk about a well to wake, um, a life cycle uh, um, view on, on uh, your fuels, clearly they cannot be the, the final solution. Um, if you ask me what do I do today or tomorrow, I would order a standard ship as you have it today as well, because there is nothing else. Um, LNG is not an option for, um, for tramp owners like we are. Um, it's probably different if you are a container operator or if you have a short sea trade where you know you have the infrastructure, but it's certainly not an option for us. So uh, for now, I think the all, we, all we can do is um, try to optimize hull forms, propulsion systems, ship designs in general, um, work on the operational side. That's probably you know, where you can uh, make a difference. Um, but in terms of fuel, I don't really see that there's an alternative to what we're doing today. Yeah, so, so I, I, will, I will just have a short ending statement from each one. And the, the question is, we have today, uh, we have uh, a question about uh, a trillion USD needed to build the necessary infrastructure. How confident we feel that uh, land-based economy will help shipping deal with that problem and how uh, or whether we should feel that shipping should move on its own, take its own initiatives in dealing with this matter. And starting with Professor Arkumanis, what is your short ending statement on this? I, I respect the view of my colleagues in London. They are next door to, to us. Uh, of course, they try to, exp to uh, include everything possible, but the figures are out of, the, of any imagination in terms of costs. However, at the same time, estimates that 20 billion over the 10-year period will solve the problem and will manage to bring ammonia and hydrogen and I use these two because they are two sides of the same coin, effectively, uh, as the only uh, future uh, fuel ahead is it, even 20 billion is, is very small. So the truth may be close to 100 billion, 
but again, these are all estimates. Uh, this is an academic uh, exercise. Let's take it like this. Hugh, so. Shipping, moving on its own. I think when that happens and has happened many times in different areas where you know, I think in general, ships always get built too quickly for, for these things. So any time we're all promised that there are going to be new refineries you know, coming up in a certain area and therefore um, you know, long-range product carriers are the investment of the future, people rush out and build a lot of long-range product carriers and the sector never quite reaches its promise. Similarly with LNG, sometimes we you know, get excited by by a theme. Um, and so I, I think, you know, certainly we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't invest a ahead of some, you know, planned change in, in infrastructure. Um, you know, I think you just, you have to, you have to see that that would actually be uh, be happening. And and I agree with, with Dieter. I think for, for, you know, for tanker and, and, and bulker owners, uh, particularly the, um, you know, Unfortunately, this just it doesn't align with these climate goals. But what you're you're doing is focusing all the time on on efficiency. You're there are some, you know, amazing paints. It's not as exciting as a hydrogen-powered yacht that um, you know Mr. Gates was reported to have built, bought and now reported not to have bought. <laughs> but but you know these. I mean, those are some exciting things. But for the rest of us, it's still about squeezing efficiency out of uh, out of your operation. Um, every day, staying very, very flexible. I think staying uh, liquid, staying not too highly levered. I think you know there are going to be some real, uh, you know, challenging ups and downs, and and the extent of, you know, when you invest, how much you invest is going to be uh, uh, really important. But I, I just, I don't see like a big bet that could be made, you know, on the back of anything to do with, uh, you know, potential future infrastructure, fuel changes, or things right now. Thank you, Scott. I think the professor already said it, you know, this, this issue is much bigger than shipping itself. With two or three percent of the emission responsibility on our shoulders, uh, we need help. But we're a soft target for the environmentalists. And ship owners tend to comply. We put scrubbers on our ships. We put ballast water treatment sh systems on our ships. So we, we willingly comply with, with the demands of the environmentalists for some reason. That said, the money has to come from the logistics chain of supplying the fuel. The money has to come from the fuel producers. It's not just shipping, it, it, it's the entire community. Okay, Philippos. I have, I have a little bit different opinion on, uh, on the fuels and on the cost. One trillion is way uh, uh, back from the amounts uh, required. There is an, a study from uh, Energy Defense Fund uh, from U.S. that uh, uh, quantifies the cost to produce ammonia for the consumption of eight Panamaxes a year, and it is close to one billion. Uh, if you try to calculate that for the entire uh, fleet, uh, we are talking about only five trillions to produce ammonia for shipping alone, plus, uh, the alternative energy, that means uh, you need also to invest on alternative energy, and plus the infrastructure for the, uh, for the banking, et cetera. So the cost is, is very, is huge, um, but this doesn't concern uh, shipping. If the availability of fuel is there, shipping will follow very easily, the technology is there, and I, and I believe uh, 
re replying also to the question, what should an owner order today? Possibly a vessel optimized, of course, but with an engine, a main engine that can be easily converted to burn alternative fuels, whatever this will be. I think uh, it was all said now. I, uh, I agree that I mean, your shipping needs help. I mean, clearly we don't build ships' engines and we don't design fuels. Um, we are, we are uh, taking, we are buying. We, to, to a certain extent, we can influence a little bit what is, uh, what is being made available, but we are buying what is uh, available in the market. So I think the drive um, by ICS and others now to create the fund uh, for research and energy, uh, re research and development is a, is, a, is a good move. I think that, that will uh, also show that uh, shipping takes an interest, an active interest in where we are heading. Um, but beyond that, we really need the uh, support of other land-based industries. Right. Mr. Chairman, do you want to add comment? Thank you, Pedro. I mean, I think we've got to finish the panel now because we're, we're over on the time. But I just want to examine one main point which was mentioned by Professor Kumanis. And I think that's the message which I think having heard the panel, which we're very thankful for, the message has to get out loud and clear to the audience for those who are prepared to argue, to fight it, or to do whatever they can. It's the basic is decarbonization is a global issue and not a shipping issue. We've said this time and time again. We know the reason behind it is because the shipping market has always been fragmented. But I think basically until get thi unless things get worked, we have to do something fairly constructive a united front for all people who are in the audience who are involved in business, which in fact will probably be decision makers in the future. It has to be the element of synergy amongst the big players to ensure that the message gets across loud and clear that it's a global issue and not a shipping issue. Thank you. Okay, uh, so I'd like to thank all panelists for very interesting views shared here, and we will all need to give them a round of applause for <laughs> all the others. With a view of saving some time, uh, would, can I just call the graduates to get the next panel to come up to the next um, uh, session? Uh, the next session is on ship management, delivery operational excellence, and increasing complex world. The moderator on this venue will be Andreas Minonas. The panelists are Mr. Lefteris Caraminas, Mark O'Neill, Brahet Ia, Roin Algist, and Alistair Evitt. If you can all come gradually to the panel to save some time. Thank you. Rabat. 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 R